Well, we like to open by saying uh, welcome first to those of you that may be joining us for the first time here in our sanctuary or if you're joining us online for the first time. Uh, yeah, welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we're going to be looking at the seventh seal in Revelation and the first four trumpet judgments of Revelation. I titled this study Trumpets of Woe. Some people call it Trumpets of Doom, Doom, Woe, whatever negative term you could think of um, is kind of where we're getting into the book of Revelation, you know, and the end of the world is uh, is a fascinating subject. It's an interesting subject for many, you know, there's been movies made about the end of the world, books have been written about the end of the world. Um, It's just interesting. You know, when I was in eighth grade and I went to summer camp at First Baptist Church of Bellflower, they had this little like chapel, like kind of on the edge of the camp territory, and it was kind of like a prayer chapel, but it had this really big, illustrated, scary, important looking Bible (laughs) sitting on the little altar in there. And uh, me and my friends uh, would, you know, go to this camp, and, and we didn't know Jesus at all, but one of the things we always found interest in was going to that chapel and turning to the book of Revelation because it was the scary book. It was the action book. It was the, the end of the world book, you know. Um, some Gallup polls that are taken say that the end of the world is one of the top issues on people's minds. And, you know, really people have been thinking about the end of the world since the beginning of the world, right? <laughs> when is the end going to come and what's that going to look like? And on top of that, the end of the world, it's an area of biblical study all on its own. The term for this is eschatology, if you're familiar with that, and that comes from the term eska, which means end things. And so eschatology is the study of end things. And there are theology classes in Bible schools and universities worldwide. Entire sections um, are are devoted to eschatology, the study of the things of the end times. And it's an important biblical concept. It's something the Bible talks a lot about. Prophecy deals with the end times in great detail in the book of Daniel. The phrase, the time of the end, is used five different times. Um, In the New Testament, we see Jesus using the term the end end of the age a whole bunch of times. But really, the question that comes up for some people when we're studying things like the book of Revelation or studying eschatology is what is the point and the benefit to the believer today in studying the end times? What, What is the point? Well, among many, I think one of them is found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. And Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, in studying Revelation, in studying the words of God in the Bible, seeing what is taking place in our world today, seeing the darkness that is falling in our world today, the study of these things for us today is meant to bring us peace. It's meant to bring us peace and hope. It's meant to bring us to a place where where we place our trust in God fully because we know how the story ends. We know how things are going to unfold. We know the purpose and plan of God for his people, at least as it is revealed in his word. And so those that believe, the Bible tells us, will be saved. Those that have put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ will be saved. Sin and Satan will be dealt with. And we have peace today, knowing our future, knowing that our future is secure, and knowing in the face of all the sin we see in the world today that justice will be done. 
Last week, we saw an intermission, if you will, between the sixth and seventh seals, an intermission, a pause in the action as we looked at um, really something taking place after God had begun to release his judgments on the earth through chapter 6, we saw as the seals began to be opened, we, we saw how the Antichrist was allowed to step into the earth and take control of the earth, conquering the earth, if you will, not through warfare initially, but through a false peace, allegedly solving all the problems of the planet, solving all the conflicts and everybody's issues, but that peace quickly turned into war as we saw the red horse and then the black horse and then the pale horse come in as war entered into the earth. And then we saw a picture of people being murdered for their faith, people who had turned to God during this time of tribulation, daring to cry out to Jesus Christ for salvation, daring to preach that Jesus is the answer as it's always been preached, and yet they were murdered for their faith, and then we see them crying out to God to avenge them. And then we see the beginning of the devastations of the creation by the Creator as God starts to pour out signs and wonders and and destructions upon the earth. And even in that, we saw that mankind still, instead of turning to God in the face of these judgments, still would turn to the creation for protection as they went and hid in the rocks and the mountains and crying out to the rocks and mountains to save them instead of the creator. And then we saw just before things start to get even worse, God's seal During this pause between the sixth and seventh seals of Revelation, God then seals 144,000 people from his chosen people, the Jews, Israel, to preach the gospel worldwide. And we saw them called and protected to do that work, to preach that Jesus is the Messiah worldwide. And then we saw this picture where that led to this vast, uncountable multitude coming to Christ over the course of this tribulation period. A multitude so huge, it said it couldn't be counted And then we saw worship taking place there in heaven. But yet, there are others still on earth clinging arrogantly to their sin, clinging arrogantly to their sinful ways and their rebellion, refusing to acknowledge God as Lord, as Master, refusing to accept Him as Savior. And so the judgments continue to escalate with the opening of the seventh seal. And with that then comes the commencement of the seven trumpet judgments the second section of judgments that God is pouring out on the earth during this time. So that's what we're going to be looking at today in Revelation chapter 8, but before we do that, we're going to spend some time in worship. Because even though we're looking at this horrible time of tribulation, the picture of this, the picture of this is how serious God takes sin and what God's judgment of sin is going to look like during the tribulation period. But today, we are saved We have been saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and hallelujah, that is something to praise God for, amen? Let's worship God, or let's pray, (laughs) then we'll worship God. We thank you, Lord, so much for your salvation. We thank you, God, that you died on the cross, Lord, that, that the entire wrath of God in this age of grace started with the wrath being poured out on you as you stepped into our place to take our punishment, our penalty for our sin, that, Lord, we would be able to find salvation in you through faith in your work, faith in you as God, faith in what you did for us. And, Lord, we say thank you for that. But, Lord, we know that this time, this age of grace, where people have the opportunity to come to you before the terrible time of tribulation, Lord, we know time is running out. And your word encourages us to redeem the time, for the days are short. 
And so, Lord, we are so grateful for the salvation you've given us, God. And I pray, Lord, that as we worship you this morning and open today and worship God, that we would remember what you've done for us and remember the call, Lord, the call to go out and tell others that don't yet know you about that because judgment is coming. The time of the end is coming, Lord. And God, we want as many as will to be saved and to come to heaven with us. But Lord, you are almighty, and that is worth worship. You are just, that is worth worship. You are holy, that is worth worship. God, you are perfect. We worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we are in Revelation chapter eight. And so if you will read with me, starting in verse one. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So verse 1 here of chapter 8, it's a pretty significant contrast to what we've read so far taking place there in heaven. If you remember over the last couple, couple chapters, there has been a lot of noise in heaven. Lots and lots of noise, joyful noise. Worship has been taking place as the angels are worshiping and the saints are worshiping and the elders are worshiping and the four living creatures are worshiping. And so chapters four and five are all full of heavenly worship, loud singing. And then in chapter six, the angel comes along and calls out to John and says, come and see, come and see. Come and see over and over as the seals are opened. The martyrs we see under the altar saying, Lord, how long? How long until you avenge us? So there's lots of activity, lots of talking, lots of worshiping, a whole lot of noise, and then silence. Silence. It says there's silence upon the opening of the seventh seal for about a half an hour. It's an ominous phrase. It's intended to be an ominous phrase. Now, half an hour may not seem like a long time to any of you. Um, it really isn't a long time in the context of time, right? But in terms of a dramatic pause, it's a long time. Try it. Try and just be still. Be quiet. No rustling, no sound, nothing for a half an hour and you'll find out how uncomfortable it can be. You know, um, Pastor Gary was known to do these dramatic type pauses when making decisions. If you ever had the opportunity to, to sit with him during one of those moments, um, they were long and uncomfortable at times. You know, when I first was asked to come on staff in 2000, I think it was, as the junior high leader, I was in a meeting with Pastor Gary, and he was sharing with me what, what God was doing with the ministry. I was a counselor in the ministry at the time, and 
I remember he said, hey, there's an opportunity come up and we would like to um, offer the junior high ministry to you. Uh, we would like to you to take over leadership of it. And I was super blessed and honored and scared, but for some, I can only call it youthful arrogance reason. I said, I won't do it unless you bring me on staff full time. And he looked at me and he did that Pastor Gary head tilt. Some of you have seen that, right? It can be terrifying. <laughs> kind of furled his brow a little bit, rubbed his cheek, and didn't say a word. Silence. Dramatic pause. Now, it was a terrifying pause. And to be honest, I wasn't sure if he wasn't figuring out a way, how do I kill this arrogant punk? <laughs> right? At least that might have been what I was thinking at the time. Um, later, I learned that during those dramatic pauses, it was Pastor Gary praying and going, Lord, what do you think? Lord, what's your direction? What's your will? And something, uh, a great habit that I learned from him. And, and the pause was probably no more than 30 seconds. But man, it felt like 30 minutes. It was very uncomfortable. And here we see this picture in heaven. Every angel, every elder, every creature, all the martyrs, everybody there in heaven, silent for 30 minutes. Now contextually, because we have the whole book of Revelation, we know that this silence is the calm before the storm of the escalating judgments that are about to fall upon the earth. This chapter opens up as the seventh seal is open. The seventh seal, the, the last of the seals that were, that were keeping the scroll that was closed, the scroll that the lamb purchased with his blood, this scroll now being fully unraveled, fully unfurled. And the implication there is that everybody in heaven that is there present could see this scroll being unfurled. And as they observe the scroll being opened, everyone is silent, almost like they're holding their breath almost like there's a waiting in this dramatic pause. All the worship stops. All speaking stops. And they're in silence. I believe it's a silence of awe. We know Scripture tells us to be still and know that I am God. And I believe this silence is a moment where they're realizing it's about to happen. The judgments have started to unfurl. And as mankind has still rejected God and still chosen to deny God and still chosen their rebellion, as the scroll is finally fully opened, there's a silence of awe. There's a silence of dread at what's about to happen. Silence because of the terrible, terrible judgments that are about to fall upon the earth. But I also believe it's a silence of joy, a joyous silence, an eager anticipation because the day has finally come. The moment, the time of history has finally arrived that, that wickedness is finally going to be dealt with on the earth. Sin is finally going to get what's coming to it, if you will. Remember those martyrs are under the altar having been slain for their faith, going, Lord, how long till you avenge us? It's something that we could find ourselves thinking in today's world, right? When we hear stories about murderers and rapists and pedophiles, and we're like, Lord, how long are you going to continue to allow this type of sin to be present in the world? When are you going to deal with it? And the moment has arrived, and everybody is silent in anticipation of about what's in, a, in 
in the presence of what is about to fall. Sin will be dealt with. Satan will be destroyed. Sin will be gone. Jesus will finally reign forever. God is finally taking it all back. And there's this reverent, awe-filled silence. And then verse 2, it says, I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Now, it's interesting there because when it says the seven angels, the is a definite article in the original language, definite article. What I mean by that, he doesn't just say, and seven random angels. The seven angels. It's referring to seven specific angels. Specific angels with some type of rank or position or authority that are different from the other angels there. And it says the seven angels and it qualifies them who stand in the presence of God. And you might think, wasn't everybody standing in the presence of God there in heaven at this point? Yes, but the definite article there means that this standing in the presence of God is some descriptor of their their special nature, these particular seven angels. and it shouldn't be strange for us to consider that because, you know, throughout Scripture, um, we see that there's rankings of angels, right? Paul in the New Testament spoke about this. He said there's principalities and powers and rulers and, and, and others that are entitled dominions, right? He referenced this, this kind of ranking of position or authority that angels have. We know that Scripture mentions archangels and cherubim and seraphim, and so there's many different rankings of angels in the heavenlies. What's really interesting, I find, regarding these particular seven angels who stand in the presence of God is we might already know one of them by name. You see, in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, it tells us, The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And that word presence there in Luke chapter 1 is the same exact word for presence used here in Revelation chapter 8, verse 2. That's speculative, I know, but it's an interesting uh, uh, detail nonetheless. But these seven angels, it tells us, they were handed these seven trumpets, and they take these seven trumpets, as verse 6 tells us, and they're ready to sound them. Now, John, who is recording all of this for us, being a Jew himself, would be very familiar with the trumpet, the trumpet as an instrument in the context of his culture and in the uh, context of the history of Israel. Because a trumpet, if you go through the Old Testament and you study the history of Israel and the the, the Jewish people, you'll find that the trumpet is likely the most significant instrument in, in Israel. It's the most significant instrument of the nation. It was used in Scripture more than any other instrument. You know, you have lyres, you have harps, you have timbrels, but the trumpet we see in Scripture is used in, in the nation of Israel more than any other instrument. It played a big role in all the meetings of the people of Israel. It was used to call the people together, right? They would sound the trumpet, they would sound the horns, and the people would come together Um, It was also something used to declare war, that when the trumpet was sounded, war was declared. It was used during special festivals for different elements of the festivals, Um, but it's all over the place. You know, when the law was given at Mount Sinai, it tells us a trumpet was sounded. When the children of Israel were at Jericho, when they marched out and ended up leveling that city through the power of God, what it tells us is that trumpets were sounded. In 1 Kings 
Trumpets were sounded when a king was inaugurated or a king was, was anointed to rule. In Revelation chapter 1, John said that he heard the voice of Jesus and it sounded like a trumpet. In Revelation 4, it says the voice of that trumpet or the voice like that trumpet is what called him up to heaven, which I personally see as a picture of the rapture of, church, uh, rapture of the church prior to the judgments taking place, prior to the seals being opened, John is called up to heaven with a voice of the trumpet, and that lines up with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, where it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and that word shout there means a command. I don't know, maybe a command like, come up here is what we see in Revelation chapter four. But it says, he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. I'm encouraged by those words. I hope you're encouraged by those words where, like we see in Revelation chapter 4, that we are called with that voice like the trumpet. We are called before the seals, before the trumpet judgments, before the bowl judgments that pour out upon the earth, that we are called up. It's not very encouraging to me to, to think, no, God's going to leave me here as his child, as his saved, forgiven child, and then pour out all this wrath on the world and, and let me, who, who believes in him now, experience all that. That's not encouraging to me. And I know there's different interpretations of these things, but what I see here is this picture that we are called out. But this trumpet is used in all these different pictures. These seven trumpets that John now sees taking place, and, and it's a reoccurring note I keep pointing out that John, who represents the church being caught up to heaven, is observing these things from heaven. He's observing what is taking place on earth from heaven. He now sees these trumpets, but they're not trumpets of festivals. They're not trumpets of inauguration. They're not even the trumpet of rapture because that has already happened. They are trumpets of woe. And they sound the trumpet. And what comes from the sounding of these seven trumpets we see in verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 13, and chapter 11, verse 15. But before we get to those trumpets, we see something that is taking place here in heaven. Verse 3 of Revelation 8. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. Now, in the book of Hebrews, it teaches us that the tabernacle of God that existed on earth, the tabernacle that, that traveled, the Jewish people had in the wilderness as they traveled through, that tabernacle that we see in the Old Testament was an earthly model of heaven, of the throne room of God, if you will. And so in the tabernacle that we have on earth, and you could study this in the Old Testament, there are actually two altars. In the outer court, you had what was called the brass altar or the brazen altar, and that was the altar where the animal sacrifices were killed, where the, the sacrifice would be brought in, the sacrifice that was there for the people's sin. It would be slaughtered on that altar. It would be burned on that altar. But in the holy place, which was the place where the priests can go, 
before the veil, which separated the holy of holies, which only the high priest could go into, in the holy place, there was a much smaller golden altar in the tabernacle. And what would happen is that the priest would take coal from the altar of sacrifice where the sacrifice was burned. He would take one of the hot coals and he would place it inside this incense burner. And, and you might have seen pictures of these. It's kind of like you got a handle and a chain and there's this, this bowl kind of dangling from it and they would swing it around and the incense burning would spread the smoke around. And so he would take a coal from the altar of sacrifice, put it in this incense burner, and then he would walk from the outer court into the holy place where the altar of incense was, he would take the coal out of the incense burner, place it on the altar, sprinkle more incense on it, and the smoke would just go up and fill the holy place. Now the incense would rise up as a sweet aroma to the Lord, as it was said. A sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, but all of that, that whole picture, was that in the holy place, in, in, in God's throne room, right before the throne, which was just separated by the veil at the time because Jesus hadn't died yet, the prayers of the people would go up into the presence of God. And that's what all this incense represented in the tabernacle, and we see that very same picture taking place here in the heavenlies. David used the same picture in Psalm chapter 141, verse 2, where he said, May my prayer be set before you as incense. And so we see that very same thing happening here in heaven. It says the incense is mixed with the prayers of the saints, and in heaven it all goes up. It says it went up to the presence of God. Now, this is a picture um, of, of the prayer, all the prayers, past and present of all the saints, because it says they're the prayers of all the saints, right? So, so it, you, in one way, you could look at it and see that it's, it's a symbolic picture of every prayer of every saint and what they do. They go up to God. God hears our prayers. Our prayers reach him is what it's showing us, and, and he answers those prayers. The Bible tells us that God hears our prayers, and he answers. He doesn't lose them is the idea. He doesn't misplace them. Like, we're not going to get to heaven one day and say, God, I was, I was praying for that thing, you know, for 10 years, and I never got an answer from you. And he's going to be like, what? Hold on. <laughs> Rifle through the file cabinet. Oh, shoot, I misfiled it. Sorry. Right? That's not going to happen. That's not the picture. God hears your prayers, and he answers. Now, you might be saying, but wait a minute. I've prayed lots of things that haven't been answered, Right? I think we all feel that way at times. Well, just as a quick reminder, you know, and, and you've probably heard different variations of this over the years, but there's four basic answers to prayer, four basic answers to prayer that I see biblically. One of them is no. I love you too much to allow that in your life. That's an answer to prayer. You see, we often think God didn't answer my prayer because he didn't answer in the affirmative. He didn't give me what I want. Parents, you're very familiar with this, aren't you? No is often an answer to your kids' desires because you know it's bad for them. You know it's going to be detrimental for them. You know it's going to be harmful. So one of the answers to prayer is no, I love you too much to allow that. One of the other answers to prayer is no, not yet. The timing isn't right, and, and you know, we hate that one, right? We hate that answer. In this age of instant everything, right? Like, I, I, I'm part of the, one of those meal plans where they send you food in the mail, right? And, and it's frozen, and it just, it works for me, right? But sometimes when I look on the back and it says, five minutes, I'm like, I'm going to starve to death. <laughs> you kidding me? Five minutes for this thing to get ready? 
You know, the breakfast ones only take three minutes. Come on, right? I mean, we live in this age where we're so used to things being instantaneously available. You can get all the information you want on your phone instantaneously about anything. So, but sometimes it's no, not yet, wait. The third answer is yes. I thought you'd never ask, right? Because the Bible tells us we have not because we ask not. The Lord loves answering the prayers of his people, and sometimes he loves answering, yes, I've just been waiting for you to ask me. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I, I'm the creator of everything. Trust me. Just come to me with your needs. And then sometimes the fourth one is yes, and here's much more than you asked, because the Bible tells us that he does exceedingly above all that we ask or think. So those are the four basic answers to prayer. Um, and so keep praying and trust God. But don't ever be tempted to think he's not hearing your prayers. We see this picture that all the prayers of the saints, they go up to the presence of God. But, but do these prayers in Revelation chapter 8, do they refer to anything specific? Um, I believe it's very likely because what we see in verse 5 or 6 here, read with me. It says, the angel then took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and he's referring to that altar of incense, that golden altar before the throne, and he hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, and then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. You see, on the Day of Atonement, down here on earth in the tabernacle, um, the high priest would, would, again, take a coal, put it in the incense burner, walk into the uh, holy place, and he would put it on the altar, and he would sprinkle incense on it, right? But, but the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he also had in his other hand blood from the altar of sacrifice. So he had the incense, and he had the blood from the altar of sacrifice. And so after the incense had burned on the altar of incense, he would then, the high priest, one day a year, would walk into the Holy of Holies, the inner place where, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat. It was, it was the picture like this is literally God's throne where he's seated. And he would go in there that, that one time a year with that incense burner still full of burning incense and the blood, and he would sprinkle that blood on the altar. And this whole presentation was, was casting the, the, the sins of the people onto the mercy seat and saying, God, please forgive our sins. And then, of course, we know that God would then forgive the sins for the people. That's, he would atone for those things. That's what they call it was the day of atonement, right? The people were atoning for their sins. The animal would take the death. The blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat. But the whole picture of that is sin was judged in that moment. In that moment, sin was judged. The wrath of God, if you will, was, was appeased, was held back for another year. But here in Revelation 8, we see a twist. Instead of the angel with that incense burner, having gone to the altar and the prayers lifting up and then, and then filling that incense burner again with the fiery, fiery coals, instead of walking to the throne where God sits and saying, okay, God, forgive our sins. Instead of doing that, that whole picture there, that censer, which is now full of fire, is hurled to the earth for judgment. Hurled to the earth for judgment where the people of earth who refuse God's payment for sin are getting the opportunity to pay for it themselves through this tribulation period. With peals of thunder, rumblings, lightning, and an earthquake, it says here. And it's an interesting picture to me because the picture is that these judgments that are falling upon the earth during tribulation appear to be a direct response to the prayers of God's people. 
the prayers of God's people. Whereas today, as I said earlier, sometimes we pray, God, how can you allow that to happen? When are you going to judge that? When is justice going to come? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? When are you going to deal with it? When, God, when? That's what we see taking place here. In response to the prayers of God's people, judgment, the fire is now cast down to earth, not thrown upon the altar. That time has passed. The time where the wrath of God has been cast upon Jesus himself, taking the full wrath of God for our sin, the age of grace that we live in now, at this point, that time has passed. We are now in tribulation. We are now in tribulation where God is going, look, I'm pouring out my judgment now. I'm not holding it back. Now, yes, during this time, there is still the opportunity for people to finally go, God, I'm so sorry. I repent of my sins. I believe you're God. Please forgive me, and he will do that. But in the midst of all that, wrath has finally come upon the earth for its sin. And then whereas once it was, God, forgive me, and the judgment fell on Jesus, now it's, God, when will you judge those? And God is judging those. Now, I believe in this picture, um, we're encouraged to keep praying. Yes, in this age of grace, we are called to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, right? We're called to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Yeah, we're called to, to, to live and behave in all of these examples in, in, in actions of grace, right? Why? Because we're in the age of grace, We're in the age of God's long-suffering, and we as his people are called to be like him, long-suffering, graceful, merciful, and yet we are still called to pray, to pray. Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're waiting for in this age. We are waiting for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I think you might agree as you look around the world today with all its sin and all its perversions and all its wickedness, well, you know what? I don't really see God's will being done on earth in the way it is in heaven. Now, you might argue with me and go, well, wait a second. God's omniscient and he's allowing things. Okay, sure. (laughs) But people aren't following God's will on earth the way they do in heaven today in this age. But one day, One day this prayer will be answered, and that is what I believe we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 8. He's taken it all back. His will is being enforced. Sin and Satan is being dealt with. Jesus is going to be exalted. His power and glory are being made manifest. And as horrific as it is, it really is a wonderful picture of the power of prayer that God hears, and God will answer and does answer, but it's always according to his timetable. Now what unfolds moving forward is, is what Paul spoke about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul said this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. He said, It is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. What is the book of Revelation the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. 
And so again, just in a couple previous chapters, the saints praying, oh Lord, how long until you avenge us? A prayer that many of us pray today when we hear or see different things, and now that prayer is being answered. God is stepping in. He turns up the judgment on those who are rejecting him. He's turning up the, the, the judgments on those who have persecuted and harmed those who are his. And so we'll be looking at the first four trumpet judgments in the last 15 or 20 minutes of service today here. Um, the first four are what's the conclusion of chapter eight. The first four are natural judgments, meaning that they are judgments that fall upon nature. They fall upon the physical creation. And then the second two judgments, which we'll look at next time, are supernatural. And these are uh, judgments that are dealing with demonic forces being unleashed upon the earth. We're actually gonna look at that in two weeks because next week is Father's Day and we're gonna take a moment to honor the fathers here in our congregation. But when we get to it, we're gonna see a picture um, that is a picture of real judgment, real judgment falling on earth. And it is indeed these first four trumpets, earth itself that is being judged. Read with me in verse seven. The first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. Same word, hurled. So a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now this is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Joel, the prophet Joel in chapter two, verse 30 said, I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. It's something that we've seen in God's judgment in, in prior times of judgment. You remember how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire from the sky. You guys remember the plagues of Egypt? One of those plagues was great hailstones falling from the sky. And so here we see this hail and this fire, but it says it's mixed with blood. That's an interesting picture, right? Now again, this is one of those things where we don't know exactly what it is. We can speculate and conjecture about it, but it could be something related back to verse five where it says that censer was hurled down to the earth and then there was thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. This is the second mention of an earthquake in Revelation. You remember there was already one large one um, here, and, and these, this blood could be something that's possibly coming from um, these earthquakes, right? Such severe tectonic shifting worldwide that there are then volcanic eruptions on a worldwide sca uh, scale, lava being spewed all over the place. Dr. Henry Morris, who's a scientist from San Diego, California, said this, it is possible that a worldwide volcanic explosion would be a normal consequence of a worldwide violent earthquake. The masses of water vapor blown skyward might well condense in the intense updraft as hailstones, and then showers of burning lava might well then come down with them upon the earth. The blood of entrapped men and animals might be mingled with all of this, or possibly showers of liquid water drops might be so contaminated with dust and gases that they would appear blood red. So it's a picture of this horrific upheaval upon the earth. Now what is the target of all of this? Well, you see there the target is the trees and the green grass. It's all the green vegetation of the earth. It's the land that is the target. Imagine the upset to the balance of nature, the, the ecological disaster that would take place as a third of the trees are gone and a third of the green grasses, right? We know that trees are a part of making the oxygen we breathe. 
What's that gonna be like when a third are suddenly gone? Grasses make up pasture lands that then cattle and things graze on to produce the, the milk and all the stuff that we get from cattle. Imagine when a third of that is gone. The word trees here in the Greek is dendron, and in the Bible, that word dendron is often used to refer to fruit trees in Scripture, fruit trees, trees that bear fruit. And so this whole picture is is that grains and vegetables and fruit are going to become scarce. And what's that going to do? Drive up the cost. You think things are expensive now. And then imagine with a third of the trees going, um, what housing costs are going to do as the cost of lumber goes through the roof, as, as lumber itself becomes scarce. It's, it's going to be incredible. Now, what's interesting, in Romans chapter 1, as, as we see this first trumpet judgment falling upon the land, the earth itself, Romans 1 tells us that creation shows the attributes of God, Right? There's this whole section there where it talks about that, that who God is is very clearly seen in the creation we see around us and the perfect balance of things, the perfect creation of things, right? All those little nuances, like if we were one degree closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were one degree farther away, we'd be an ice cube. And all this different stuff we see in the very perfect balance of creation. And Romans 1 says, yeah, duh, it shows you that there's a creator. And honest scientists today admit the impossibility of evolution, and yet even though creation itself speaks of a creator, even though this perfect, delicate, impossible balance of all things speaks that someone created it, that there was an intelligence behind it, God, duh, man still denies a creator. Romans 1 says man should have been able to just look at the environment and say, you know what, there's a God, There's a creator out there and he should be worshiped because if he was powerful enough to create all of this, he is almighty and worthy to be worshiped. Instead, Romans 1 says they took God's creation and started worshiping it. We're gonna worship Mother Earth. We're gonna worship the created thing. And they worship the created. They worship the creature instead of the creator, Romans 1 says. And there's thousands and thousands around the world today that do indeed worship Mother Earth, Gaia, She's the one that we worship. She's the one that we bow down to. You know, nature is God. God is nature. And guess what? God, the real God, God Almighty, will judge their God that they think is all-powerful. And some are going to be like, how dare he? He made it. It's his. He can do whatever he wants with it. It's his creation. He made the rules. He's the one that that defined all of that. He is free to do with it what he pleases. But the point of all of this is to say, earth is not God because I'm, look what I'm doing to it. It can't save you. Only God can save. Verse eight. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. And so a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So it's interesting there. Here it says something like a great mountain ablaze with fire. Something like. We don't know exactly what it is for sure, right? There is a very specific Greek word that that John uses that we get our word asteroid from. He actually uses that in the next trumpet judgment, but he doesn't use it here. So it could be uh, this great 
gigantic rock ablaze with fire could, could be a picture of a comet finally striking the earth. That's one of the speculations about this. And it strikes the sea specifically. But, but look how precise these judgments are, right? If God is not flexing here, look at how precise. It's exactly a third and a third and a third. And first he strikes the land, now he is striking the sea. And exactly a third of the green vegetation was affected when he struck the land, and now it's exactly a third of the creatures in the sea and the ships upon it. Now, the sea here is specifically referencing saltwater sources, right? But it was interesting because there's, there's a bunch of websites out there where you could kind of see how many ships are currently on the ocean kind of stuff, you know? And it's one of those like Google Earth types of things that you'll spend way too long perusing if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, no personal experience, right? So... But one of these ShipFinder websites uh, said that there's currently 58,000 merchant ships trading on the international waters as of 2022. 58,000 ships just plying the oceans. Cargo ships, container ships, all this type of stuff. This isn't recreational stuff. This is just stuff that has to do with the economy and the, and the moving of, of goods, right? And it says that a third of all these ships are gonna be destroyed. That would be 19,000 of the existing merchant ships on the ocean just suddenly being destroyed. Imagine what that's going to do to the global economy. Amazon's probably not going to have two-day shipping anymore at that point. And then it says the demise of a third of all the ocean creatures. That can explain the sea becoming blood, right? The, the creatures that live in the ocean, whales, dolphins, fish, everything that's out there, all the stuff we know and even the stuff we don't know, but a third of it dying suddenly. That would explain this, the ocean becoming blood. And it doesn't say becoming like blood, which is very interesting. John's very specific. Sometimes when he says it looks like something, he always uses the word like. Here, it says very clearly that the ocean became blood. That's interesting too because according to... Um, um, I forgot to write down the website, but <laughs> some, some uh, uh, species, um, ocean species uh, uh, census website I visited, I can't remember the name of it, but it said that there have been 1.2, as of 2023, 1.2 million species identified in the ocean. There's 1.2 million different species of creature living in the ocean, yet they say that only accounts for 9% of everything they think is out there. That as of 2023, today, 91% of ocean species have yet to be classified. What does that tell me? There's a lot of creatures in the ocean. And when a third of that dies, hmm, the oceans become blood. Now again, as God was judging people lifting up the land and worshiping the land, I believe God is then judging um, people lifting up uh, sea life and those types of things, you know, and trying to call them something to be elevated, right? Um, creatures are already being elevated in our culture. Malibu, uh, in the past here, passed laws. This is Malibu in California. Passed laws to give dolphins and whales human rights and equal citizenship with humans. They worship the creation rather than the creator. But God says, no, no, no. The creation is not to be exalted. Again, this stuff was predicted by the prophets. Hosea chapter 4, verse 2. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another, and for this reason the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea disappear. 
And Zephaniah 1.3 says, I will sweep away the people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. Revelation 8 verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. And so another cosmic entity falls to the earth here. Now again, this is fresh water sources, right? Rivers and springs of waters. Um, but it's interesting. It's, it's something strikes exactly a third of the rivers worldwide. So this could indicate something um, hitting the atmosphere, exploding in the atmosphere, and then spreading around the globe to fall then into these freshwater sources. It could be that. Um, as I mentioned already, when it says a great star, that word starred there is the Greek word asteros. That's where we get the English word asteroid, right? And so um, this is very similar to in chapter six when it says the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Same word, asteros. And so the speculation is it's talking about asteroid strikes on earth. But it calls this one a great star. A great star, just referencing the, the size and impact of this particular thing, possibly an asteroid hitting the earth. But according to the National Geographic Society, currently in the world today, we have 100 principal rivers in the world. The longest one is the Amazon, 4,000 miles long. The longest in America is the Mississippi River, 3,710 miles long. But a third of these are struck, and all these fresh water sources then become wormwood, it says. Wormwood just is a word that means bitter. It refers to a plant that has a root that ex exudes like this dark green oil and it's very bitter. But the idea here of this star being called wormwood, called bitter, causing our rivers to become bitter, the idea here is that the freshwater sources are becoming undrinkable, possibly poisonous. So again, that which we need to survive, water. Humans need water. Clean drinking water becomes very limited or unavailable around the world. You know, and in judging the world, in judging the God that mankind has propped up, the God, of, the God that is creation, right? The earth itself. In judging that, God we've seen has judged the sea with the first trumpet, or the land with the first trumpet, the uh, seas with the second trumpet, the fresh water sources with the fourth trump or third trumpet, and now with the fourth trumpet, he turns to the air. We read in verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened. And that's the point of this particular judgment. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. So as the earth is being afflicted, I imagine mankind is probably getting together and having a lot of you know, climate change conferences and you know, we, we need to fix it, we need to have seminars, we need to bring in the experts about climate change because oh my gosh, look what's taking place. And as they're trying to figure out what to do about the land and the sea and the rivers and all this stuff, the sky goes. The sun, the moon, the stars are all affected. It's, this could be eclipses, um, we don't know for sure again, but some speculate that as a part of the war that comes with the second seal being unleashed, that there's possibly localized nuclear detonations around the earth. And uh, it's known that nuclear de uh, detonations can cause what's called a nuclear winter, affecting the skies, affecting the weather and the temperatures. But regardless of what it is, the point here is that light will be diminished. What a picture of mankind, right? Who has decided to live in darkness and diminish the light. Light is now diminished in creation. And with the sun being diminished, 
It's likely the temperature drops, so so much for global warming. Um, we know the psychological effect on places where the sun doesn't shine for six months at a time. Can you imagine the depression and all that's going to take place as the world is darkened? Jesus said in Luke chapter 21 that there would be signs in the sun and signs in the moon and signs in the stars, and he said that men will faint from terror apprehensive of what is coming upon the world. And then verse 13, John says, I looked, and I heard a flying eagle, an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who live upon the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. If you thought these four were bad, wow, wait for the remaining ones. What's to come is even worse that has already happened. And that word woe there, woe, it means oh disaster, oh horror is what that word woe means. Now, all of this sounds terribly grim, terribly grim, and it's only going to get worse but it's all because the world has pushed away and rejected the gospel for so long. Has pushed away God and rejected him, blasphemed his name, denied him, and God has been patient. He is patient now during this age, but one day he will not be. One day his judgments will fall upon this earth, and regardless of how man might, to, might try to judge God, it's not fair what you're doing. It's not fair. It is because God is just. He is. And for those that will cry out during this time, he is given ample time. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Mankind is um, on this earth without Christ has always been about itself. We as, 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 as our people without God, we are selfish creatures. We're about self-preservation and self-preservation and self-exaltation. That's, that's the sin nature that we have as mankind, right? It's my life and my earth and my environment and my house and my stuff and my pleasure and my rules and my way. It's about my kingdom, my control, my influence, my authority, my will. And that's how man lives. But no, it's not. It's not about any of those things. It's not at all about those things. No matter how you build, how you live, what you do here and now, regardless, the end comes for every single one of us. The end will come for all of us. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. If all of your hope is in this earth, if all of your hope is in this kingdom, if all your hope is in the mountains and the rocks, if all your hope is in yourself and your accomplishments and your will and your efforts, if all your hope is in all of that, what a tragically sad day it's going to be when you realize it was all for nothing. So why do we need to know the future? Why do we need to study eschatology? Well, for the world's perspective, because like rebellious children, we all need to be warned. It's almost in a sense where, you know, sometimes parents go, okay, I'm going to count to three. God's counting. God's counting. 
And the people of this earth need to be warned. They need to wake up. They need to give their lives to Christ. They need to cry out to him for salvation today to be saved because he is the only hope. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. There is salvation in none but him. And we today as believers have the opportunity to take that message to a world that desperately needs it. You know, we have opportunities like Harvest Crusade and our evangelism ministry and our outreach teams and tracks. One of our faithful brothers here just provided tracks for the church that are over on the table. Take as many as you want, pass them out. The idea is, is judgment is coming. Let's get busy. Yeah, we gotta work, yeah, we gotta pay bills, yeah, we gotta handle our stuff, but let's not get so distracted by those things that we forget the big picture of eternity. What God is doing today, what he is going to do in the future. To have that passion that he has for the lost, to have a broken heart for those that don't yet know him. That we would do everything we can in kindness, in love, intact, to be able to get the gospel to them, to encourage them to be saved today. To redeem the time in their life now because the days are short. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, it can be hard sometimes to look at these things. It can be hard sometimes to see what you're going to do as you pour out your judgment upon sin. The sin that mankind brought into this earth. But Lord, it's all simply a picture of your holiness. And I pray, God, you would help us to see that. At the same time, Lord, we wouldn't look at any of this as saved believers and find any joy in it, God, because, Lord, this represents people dying without you. Yes, Lord, we want to see your justice fall. Yes, Lord, we want to see um, you deal with these horrible things people do in this world. But God, you said yourself that you so loved creation and everything in it, Lord, the entire world, the cosmos, that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we know you take no joy in judgment. May we as your kids never take joy in judgment. But at the same time, Lord, that we would be encouraged to know that justice is coming. However, in the meantime, Lord, let us be people that are about the gospel of Jesus Christ to share the truth of salvation with those who desperately need it because the time is short. We thank you, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.